as we look at Matthew chapter 26 and 27, we want to watch four people, Judas, Peter, the Roman governor, Pilate, and the Jewish high priest, Caiaphas. Each encounters Jesus right at a pivotal moment, the last one, the last time they'll see him, the last conversation they'll have with him. How will they handle their last encounter with Jesus? Here's what Matthew notes about them right before they make choices they can't take back. They are face to face with Jesus, which is always an invitation to be who you were made to be, but they don't want that or like that or perhaps have the capacity to deal with that. So first is Judas, Matthew 26, 14. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 disciples, went to the leading priests and asked, how much will you pay me to betray Jesus to you? And they gave him 30 pieces of silver. From that time on, Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Verse 47 picks up and says, Even as Jesus spoke, Judas, one of the twelve disciples, arrived with a crowd of men armed with swords and clubs. They had been sent by the leading priests and elders of the people. Second, we see Peter. This is 2633, where Peter declares, Even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter. This very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. No, Peter insisted, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the other disciples vowed the same. Verse 69 continues that meanwhile, while Jesus was on trial, that is, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant girl came over and said to him, you were one of those with Jesus the Galilean. Third are the chief priests and the elders, led by Caiaphas. These are the ones who oversaw both Judas's arrangement and Jesus's first part of his trial, which we see starting in chapter 26, verse 59. Inside, the leading priests and the entire high council were trying to find witnesses who would lie about Jesus so they could put him to the death. But even though they found many who agreed to give false witness, they could not use anyone's testimony. Finally, two men came forward who declared, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus remained silent. Then the high priest said to him, I demand in the name of the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the son of God. Fourth is Pilate, the Roman governor. The Jewish leaders believe Jesus deserves death for blasphemy, but they cannot execute people. And so they pass Jesus off to Pilate in order to get that done. And we see starting in chapter 57, verse 17. As the crowds gathered before Pilate's house in the morning, he asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? He knew very well that the religious leaders had arrested Jesus out of envy. Judas, Peter, Caiaphas, and Pilate. One way we can see their stories is that they are simply the supporting actors to Jesus's main plot the background characters we need in the narrative of Jesus's final days as he heads to the cross. But then we'd miss something that Matthew saw. He placed them together intentionally. In fact, if you closely follow Judas and Peter's details, you'll see that their stories occur back to back in the biography, but clearly that was not the literal order of events. The meeting with the chief priests would be strangely interrupted otherwise. So we should ask, what do we notice when these stories get put side by side? What themes emerge? What similarities and differences do we see? What is it that Matthew saw? I 
hope you've noticed as we spent these many weeks in Matthew how we refer to him often as things like an interpreter or an editor. These types of labels can be helpful as reminders that a gospel was not a linear biography moving in perfectly sequential order to tell us the exact facts of what Jesus did and said. Instead, in the genre of an ancient biography, it is totally appropriate for the person compiling the stories to organize them by meaning, by their connections to other events, or to highlight certain themes, in Matthew's case often, the fulfillment of God's previous work or the arrival of the kingdom of God. But there could be more. And so we've come to a great example of this today. For two of these four, their choices about their last encounter with Jesus are very personal. Peter and Judas are disciples, friends, intimately connected to Jesus. For the other two, they're very public. Pilate and Caiaphas have power. They're influential in their spheres, and they have an obligation to steward that. And for all four of them, there is a shared theme of fear. Each of them makes a choice they can't take back, and it's because they are afraid. For each of them, we paused right before they made that choice. Judas, even in the garden, could have chosen differently. In fact, N.T. Wright notes that Jesus' greeting to Judas, which is often do what you must or do what you came for, also could be, what are you doing here? Perhaps inviting one last chance to answer anything but betraying you. Caiaphas and the chief priests could have stopped the charade of a trial when their false witnesses weren't panning out. Pilate could have listened to his wife. Always good advice. And Peter could have told the truth. But instead, all four make choices they cannot take back. And it's fascinating where they turn after they do. So let's take a look at this now. Now here's the thing. When we were together live, I put up a giant post-it divided into four quadrants. At the top of each quadrant, I put the name of these four characters we're looking at. Judas, Peter, Caiaphas, and Pilate. If you're in a place where you're listening along, you might find it helpful to pause and just grab a piece of paper to do the same, just to make a few notes about what we're going to notice together. But if you're listening in the car or somewhere else you can't write, it'll be okay. So we're picking back up in Matthew chapter 27 here, and we're going to revisit each of these four characters. Again, looking at what happens in the moments after their choice. Where do they turn? So 27 verse 3, when Judas, who had betrayed him, realized that Jesus had been condemned to die, he was filled with remorse. So he took the 30 pieces of silver back to the leading priests and the elders. I've sinned, he declared, for I have betrayed an innocent man. Judas, after his decision, turns inward. He turns inward. He is full of remorse. I feel awful. And because he feels awful, he starts to implode. See, when you're sitting in remorse and you find yourself thinking, oh my goodness, I feel so terrible, then all you're looking for is to not feel so bad. You're so stuck in your shame that you'll turn anywhere to make the feelings go away. Help me not feel bad, thinks Judas. And so he goes to the chief priests. So we'll look to them next because they're right there in this part of the story. 27 verse 4 has their response. What do we care? They retorted. That's your problem. Then Judas threw the silver coins down in the temple and went out and hanged himself. As he spirals down in shame caused by his remorse because he has turned inward, 
he implodes. Meanwhile, the chief priests, they don't really see anything wrong with what they did. They are really concerned about protecting both their role over the temple, but also protecting the Jews from Roman attention that they would see as negative and unwanted, potentially violent. In order to sort of deal with what they've done, they turn to their peers. As a collective, they turn to one another and they say, hey, we were just protecting our people. We did what had to be done. They don't really acknowledge that their choice was wrong. And part of what happens as they turn to their peers is that they create an echo chamber. Echo chambers overall are how systems and structures get built. And much like the chief priests, where that comes maybe from good intention or um, a, a positive place at first, the echo chambers that can build systems and structures, when fear and power mix together, can then often become destructive and unjust. The chief priests don't see that they've done anything wrong and they feel defensive. And out of that position, they definitely perpetuate harm at Judas's expense. And so if you're following along and making a little chart with Judas, we would note how he turns inward, how he is full of remorse and experiences shame. For the chief priests, we would note that they turn to their peers. They create an echo chamber and they feel defensive. Let's turn now to Pilate, which means Matthew 27, 18. We left off where it says that he knew very well the religious leaders had arrested Jesus out of envy. Just then, as Pilate was sitting in the judgment seat, his wife sent him this message. Leave that innocent man alone. I suffered through a terrible nightmare about him last night. Meanwhile, the leading priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be put to death. So the governor asked again, which of these two do you want me to release to you? The crowd shouted back, Barabbas. Pilate responded, then what should I do with Jesus who is called the Messiah? They shouted back, crucify him. Why, Pilate demanded, what crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder, crucify him. Pilate saw that he wasn't getting anywhere and that a riot was developing. So he sent for a bowl of water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. The responsibility is yours. So Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip, then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. Pilate, as he makes the choice he does, turns to the crowd. You'll vouch for me that I just couldn't help it. I wash my hands of this and you all see how I had no choice. A riot was coming. He makes excuses that will cover up any inkling he might have had that what he's done is wrong. He's so sure that he doesn't have responsibility in it that I wonder if he even makes the connection between having washed his hands of it all but been the one to give the order. He is working really hard to ignore it. He turns to the crowd. He makes excuses. And he ignores whatever he might be feeling. And then finally, we have Peter. We have to jump back to chapter 26, starting in verse 74, where we see this final moment. The third denial. Peter swore to the person who said, weren't you with him? A curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know the man. And immediately, the rooster crowed. Suddenly, Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you even know me. And he went away weeping bitterly. As a relevant aside, what happens next to Peter is told in John's gospel, not Matthew's. 
But the way this worked, the way stories circulated and communities heard them, Matthew's audience knows this isn't the end for Peter. And in fact, John's gospel ends on Peter's restoration, but doesn't include the things that Matthew does as Matthew's ending, which is the Great Commission, the charge that Jesus gives to share the story and teach others how to be part of life in the kingdom. So each gospel is intentionally pulling the pieces together. And each writer knows that overall the community knows all the different stories. So in John 21, the resurrected Jesus comes. He's on the beach by the lake where Peter and others have returned to fishing. And first, he recalls them, giving them a fishing direction again. Nets to the other side. And then this. Then the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he'd stripped for work, jumped into the water, and headed to shore. Our last box in our chart had Peter. When Peter makes a choice he can't take back, he isn't full of remorse. He doesn't turn to the crowd and have them vouch that he just couldn't help it. He doesn't create an echo chamber of his peers to defend himself. Instead, Peter returns to Jesus. He repents. Because repentance is more about who we come to than how we feel. He's the one who turns to Jesus. And Jesus in response, and if you have time to read all of John 21, I highly recommend it. But part of what we see in Jesus' response is that he restores Peter. And he offers him hope which is so often what we need. When we find that we have made a choice we can't take back, we often know that it can't be mended right away. In fact, that's part of what overwhelms us. That's part of what triggers these other ways that we turn. But what we need in the moment is simply hope that it can be better again, that trust could be rebuilt, that there is a way forward. When Peter chooses to repent and turn to Jesus, that's exactly what he is able to access. And now for us, we know. There are times when we're like Judas. Here's our friend Jesus, and we're a terrible friend back. We wrong him. And we feel awful, just terrible. But our remorse is just an emotional spiral. And then we turn to anything or anyone that will fix our feelings. There are times when we're like Pilate where Jesus is putting some demands on us, has some expectations we need to live up to, and we just want to make excuses. We turn to the world to assuage our feelings. I mean, is this Jesus guy serious? How can we help what we did? There are times when we are the chief priests. We've made decisions about who God is or what God's like, and that has ruled out other possibilities. We miss certain things that actually are of the kingdom. And then we turn to our echo chambers to reinforce what we're already sure about. We wrong Jesus and we don't even know it. And so what we're going to practice right now is to be like Peter, repentant, returning to Jesus. Instead of inner remorse focused on how we feel, repentance is about who we turn to. Instead of excuses, it's just plain honest. We tell the truth about what is. And at times, we even have the humility to say that we don't know what we don't know, that we very well might have been so sure of ourselves and our rightness that we missed God, that our wrong is real, but we're blind to it. 
And repentance acknowledges that possibility and asks Jesus to give us eyes to see, perhaps as we reflect back or perhaps just as we move into the future for the next time. Now, when we were together, and perhaps if you are at home or in a place where you can do this, this is how this practice of repentance went this time. Find a candle and a way to light it. Candles have often been a symbolic way to be reminded of God's presence, something tangible that we can look at because we know we can't see God. This is common in a lot of different traditions. And so in the same way, we'd invite you to light a candle to remind you that you are with the God you're trying to turn to. And then second, take some time in quiet to simply talk to God. To acknowledge anything that has felt like it's stuck between the two of you or in the way. Simply to turn back, to turn toward the God who loves you. So third, once you've had the chance to connect with Jesus, to practice repentance like Peter, then either you can return to this podcast and I'll read it, or you on your own can find Psalm 103. It goes like this. Let all that I am praise the Lord. With my whole heart, I will praise God's holy name. Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things God does for me. God forgives all my sins and heals all my diseases. God redeems me from death and crowns me with love and tender mercies. God fills my life with good things. My youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord gives righteousness and justice to all who are treated unfairly. God revealed their character to Moses and their deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. They will not constantly accuse us nor remain angry forever. They do not punish us for all our sins. They do not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For God's unfailing love towards those who fear them is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. God has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. And so finally, step four is to blow your candle out. And this is where we're changing a bit the metaphor. Sometimes when we want to practice repentance, turning away from things that have not been giving us life and toward Jesus, who's ready to receive us, it can be helpful to have a tangible symbol of the way we're always forgiven. Not only are those things, our sins and our mistakes and our choices, not only are they as high as the heaven is from the earth, as far as the east from the west, but in this case, They are as gone as the flame from the wick. So far has God removed our sins from us. If you ever find you need a practice to simply turn yourself toward Jesus again, I hope that a candle could be one tool that you could use to first remind you of God's presence and invite conversation with God. And then to blow out, not because God's presence has left you, but because the things that block you from experiencing that presence are always forgivable. May you experience the delight of a God who cooks you breakfast on the beach, who restores you and gives you hope, no matter what choices you have made in the past. Amen.